Today on the Talent Cast, I stand up and record instead of sitting down. Woohoo! Howdy! Welcome to the Talent Cast, where we talk about the new world of talent acquisition and recruitment marketing. I, am always, am your host, James Ellis. Uh, I was bitten by a radioactive recruiter once and discovered I had strange new powers, and thus, we are here. This podcast is not sponsored or supported by anyone whatsoever. We've instituted a 100% no-pitching rule. We're here to learn, teach, and discuss so we can all become better recruitment marketing thinkers. I'm not here to sell you anything. If you like this podcast, and I really hope you do, tell the world on LinkedIn and Twitter and any other place you're professionally social. I'm pretty sure your friends don't care. Uh, You can always review us on iTunes or Google Play. We really appreciate that. Uh, As always, if you have comments, questions, topic suggestions, if you would like me to discuss uh, your particular problem, if you know someone I should interview, reach out to me on the Twitter. It's The War for Talent. That's right, The War for Talent. Or just go to our website. We're at thetalentcast.com, thetalentcast.com. Otherwise, here we go. Hope you enjoy. It's James. How you guys doing? I am. Yeah, it's true. I'm standing up. For some reason, I've realized finally, at long last, that the cable on my microphone actually allows me to stand up and walk and pace a little bit, which is my normal way of thinking and talking. But I never thought of it till now. Here, episode 17, it finally shows. It dawns on me. Oh, hey, look. So I want to talk about employer brand more than anything else. Not about the fact that I stand and walk, but employer brand. I, I, for my money, 2017, baby, that is the year of employer brand if you're in America, if you're in North America. If you're in Europe, I think employer brand was like two years ago, uh, maybe a little into 2016, but it really kind of took hold then and it's starting to really travel over here to America. Um, But this is gonna be the year and I think the reason for that is one, the Europeans at all have definitely proven that it matters, that it's important, that it's a thing, uh, that it has impact on your hiring and talent acquisition. And two, I think just ultimately, the talent, the competitive nature of talent these days is not slowing down. It's been a long time since 2008 when there was a huge glut of talent and there was a huge, you know, it was a buyer's market instead of a seller's market and the, the company had, had all the control and these days it's just simply not true and it's been years of that but we finally tapped out of all of the existing uh, oversupply of talent. Now it's we're back to where we were. It's like, you know, you do, you want to find somebody good, you have to really kind of mean it. You have to really focus on it. You have to, you know, you can't just open up the door and have a job application show up and, and say, okay, I'm going to find, I'm going to hire people. You really have to mean it. You really have to think about it. Uh, and I think recruiters would back me up on that. It's not getting any easier. It's gotten a lot harder over time. And for the recruitment marketing side, to be perfectly honest, does it feel to you like we're tapped out from the tactical standpoint? Like we've done all this stuff? Um, you know, we've done the social, and we've done the social recruiting, and we've done the career fairs, and we've done the networking, and the word of mouth, and the you know the the, the Google SEM and SEO, and search news, and and PR, and all this other stuff that you're supposed to do. And you know, aside from waiting for Snapchat to be a real thing, and by the way, it's going to be at some point. Uh, we can probably talk about that later. Show, assuming you you know any you need any updates from the last time we talked about Snapchat. Really, what the, I don't know, the secret sauce, the magic formula, I won't say silver bullet because I've used that before, um, the thing that is going to make 
your talent acquisition sing is the same thing that makes your you know consumer marketing sing. It's a brand. Uh, you know, you know if you go talk to your marketing team, which by the way you should, you should go make real good friends with those people because they get it, they understand it, and they are on the front lines of this stuff, and they can teach you a thing or two. And I think, frankly, the more they understand your world and your process, the better off you all are. You really can kind of help each other. I think anybody who says there needs to be a wall between talent acquisition and marketing is, I don't know, somehow invested in wall building. I don't know. <laughs> it makes no sense to me. So we want to talk about employer brand because that's what everybody's talking about, you know, whether it's Harvard Business Review or agencies. Uh, you know, I know of an agency here that's actually based out of London, which I don't think is uh, surprising, talking about employer brand. Uh, a friend of mine actually moved from uh, Glassdoor to a recruiting or a, a, a consulting company focused, ex you know, her specialty is on employer brand. And I think we're just going to see more and more of this stuff. So that leaves us with a question. What the heck is employer brand? Um, this kind of comes to mind because I, I, I was invited to and got a chance to spend time on a Twitter chat this week. For you, it would be last week, given I publish on Monday. Um, it's brand chat, hashtag brand chat. Hey, Maria, thanks for inviting me. Um, and we, and, and it's, it's all about brand on every conceivable level, but I wanted to talk about employer brand because that's the world I live in, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about it to people who don't normally think about it, who think about brand on a much more broader scale or broader scope. Um, and I, you know, and based on the conversations we had and based on what I saw and based on how people were responding to things, I wanted to kind of put together, um, what the heck is an employer brand? Where does it come from? How do you build it? How do you shape it? Um, you know, what is the brand itself? I'm not going to get into how you execute it or activate it or communicate it. Uh, that's for a whole different other thing, but what the heck is an employer brand? And I think you guys generally, and guys in the gender non-specific means, cause I'm from Jersey and I say guys, um, you guys need to know about this stuff because it's not going away. 2017, like I said, going to be the year of employer brands. So you need to understand how it works, what it means, what its limitations are, and when and where it should be applied. And there are plenty of people, and I hope I'm not one of them. There are plenty of people who are going to be more than happy to take your money to help you, quote unquote, build your employer brand who have no idea what they're talking about. And you are going to need to be able to suss that out before the check clears. So... I'm hoping this can be an employer brand 101, um, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe something a little more in-depth, a little more invaluable. So I'll try to go about 40 minutes on this one. Uh, so here we go. I don't, you know, <laughs> for those of you who are regular listeners, you've figured out that I don't plan these. I don't script these. I don't even have bullet points. I literally have uh, a mental map on my whiteboard that I'm going to use for reference points to make sure I hit everything. But other than that, here we go. So I have no idea how long this takes. So what is an employer brand? Now, first off, an employer brand, some people will tell you an employer brand is radically different than a consumer brand, and they're wrong, I think. And that's my opinion, and those of you who have differing opinions, I would love to have a conversation with you because that sounds like a lot of fun because I'm weird that way. <laughs> but in a consumer brand is a sense of, you know, I think Jeff Bezos said it best. He goes, a, consumer, a brand is what people say about you when you're not around. And I think... Um, an employer brand, to take that to the next step, is an employer brand or what people say about you when they're not on the clock. Uh, how are you as an employer? What do you like to work for? What do, you, what do people get out of it? What do people enjoy? What do people not enjoy? What are the pros and cons? An employer brand is complex. It is the pros and cons. It is the, the good, bad, and the ugly. Uh, but it really is focused on why should people spend eight, 10 plus hours a day 
talking to you instead of, I don't know, hanging out with her kid, playing with a dog, getting a hobby, going to the movies, maybe learning how to speak French. Uh, you know, whatever it is that they could be doing with their life, they've decided to spend it with you. You could say it's the money, and there'll be plenty of people for whom that's true, but I think there's a lot more to it than that. An employer brand is an opportunity for you to give a good reason why. Remember, there's 18 million businesses in in, in America. So let's go ahead and say there's slightly more than that worldwide. Slightly, right? Maybe 18.001. I'm just kidding all of my European and Asian listeners. And by the way, wow, crazy. 30 countries. 30 countries have downloaded this podcast. Crazy weird. I kind of can't believe it. So I apologize for my very clearly North American-centric viewpoint, but I think you guys can do the translation uh, and get what I'm talking about here. So uh, 18 million companies in the U.S., probably 20, 30, 40, 40 million companies worldwide. There are a lot of companies. And when you say, I'm going to put my job description out there and people are going to apply, the question I have for you is why? No, really, why? Why would people apply for you? Why you? If there's 18 million businesses, that means it's you and 17,999,999 other businesses that person could potentially work for. Why you? This is a crucial question. And the truth is most people do atrocious job answering this stuff. An employer brand is is, is effectively the answer to that why. It's what was the reason people apply and work for you. And really about, it really helps establish that fit. So, To start off with, employer brand stems from this idea that there are effectively eight big motivating factors as to why people work for you. Um, You offer work-life balance, you offer support, you offer status and money, you offer growth opportunities, you offer innovation, and there's a couple of others I'm not going to get into because it doesn't matter. You get what I'm talking about. Um, The reason someone works for the Red Cross and not, you know, Goldman Sachs isn't because they hate money. True, Goldman Sachs pays more, and there's a kind of a particular status to Goldman Sachs. I'm sure they're happy to tell you about that. But you don't go to the Red Cross because you want the status and the money. You go to the Red Cross because you want to make an impact on some level, and you think this is the best place to make that impact. This is your way of of giving back to the world. And it doesn't have to be as austere and black and white as that. Um, You know, look at the difference between, I don't know, really can be anybody, any nonprofit, any company that's focused on a supportive role. Ooh, here's a good one. Does everybody remember, and we can talk about this for a bit, everybody remember um, SAS, S-A-S-S, um, I'm sorry, SAS out of North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina, Cary, specifically North Carolina, and having lived in Cary and Raleigh, I know the difference. Um, th- for the longest time, they were the company when it came to employer brand. Uh, new uh, Fast Company in the late 90s talked about them as um, you know the best place to work. They offered an insane, I mean, an insane level of perks, you know, pre-Google. This is, you know, this had a gym on site. They had daycare on site. The gym was so good that you actually took gym clothes in and stitched your name on it, threw them in the hamper, they washed them and they fold them, they stuck them in your locker. So the next day you went to the gym, they had fresh, you had fresh gym clothes every day in a towel. Uh, they had a pharmacy on, on site so that if you went to the doctor and they said, here, here's a medication, boom, you got it filled right there. A dry cleaner on site, uh, discounted lunches that were gourmet. I mean, the, the, what was it? I think it was, uh, and Google stole this, I think, or at least extended it out. Um, you know, uh, M&M days on Thursdays or something like that. At the time, in the late 90s, this was insane to the point of being so remarkable that the New York, that uh, Fast Company, as well as places like Wall Street Journal, New York Times, talked about it 
This is the no one knows you know, really knew what SAS did or SAS did. They were a statistical modeling company, and frankly, you know why would you want to, why would you need to know that? Maybe one percent of the world needs to even know their name, and yet somehow professionals knew their name as being man. They don't pay very well. They were kind of in the middle of the pay scale, but perks out the wazoo, and they were committed to a work life balance. They closed the doors at five thirty or six. They did not want you there. Uh, effectively, they said, oh, oh, this is the, they were the first place I've ever heard of where they had unlimited sick time. And the joke was, look, you get sick and you're out for three weeks, we'll send you flowers. You say you're sick uh, four Fridays or four Fridays or Mondays in a row, we have questions. And they, they really took a very humanistic approach to things. You know, they didn't have the kind of policies that say you have, you accrue sick time at the rate of 1.75 uh, days per month, blah, 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 blah. They didn't have those things. They tried to treat everybody incredibly humanely, re, you know, like real people, which at the time was crazy. This is before, you know, the big, big boom. This is, you know, 97, 96, yeah, maybe it's 97. Um, and they were the ones who started it. And then, of course, the internet came along and blew that idea out of the water. And you had companies with massive valuations, you know, Yahoo being the first big one. Netscape, etc., and they just threw perks at everybody. But they were the first ones to have an employer brand that mattered. They were the ones that were different, and it wasn't about how do you chase people with money. It was about look, some people are going to love this. Some people are going to say, you know what, I do not need all that money. I need a living, a good wage, a solid wage, a competitive wage. But I'm really here to make sure that at the end of the day, I get to go to my kid's basketball game or soccer game or chess tournament or whatever the kids do, you know, that was about treating people and saying, look, you don't have to spend your life working. We can be profitable and you can still have a life too. Huge, huge shift. And they're the first company for whom everybody kind of went, huh, that's interesting. And that's really where these things come in. So someone could work, I mean, and they hire great talent, incredibly smart people, incredibly talented people, again, did not compete on the money side. It wasn't about how much money could we throw you. They didn't have to go out and bang on doors and say, please apply for us. Their brand, their employer brand of that work-life balance and perks was their brand, and it did all the speaking for them. There wasn't, you know, for a, a couple years in the late 90s, there wasn't anybody who didn't consider them. You know, if there were any talent whatsoever, they said, oh, maybe there's always SAS. Maybe there. That would be a really cool place to work. So that's really kind of where the first great example of that employer brand works. At the same time, by the way, everybody has an employer brand. You know, at the same time, you know, you're talking about SaaS being big in the late 90s, so was every other company in the world. They were just different. They were not as powerful at it. And they didn't have a strong and well-known brand, but everybody had a brand. Target has a brand. Walmart has a brand. Costco has a brand. Um, and I'm just picking companies at random, but uh, your dental uh, service has a brand. Your hospital has a employer brand. All these places have employer brands, whether they've invested in them or made decisions around them or not. SAS just made a very clear decision that says, look, this is the, these are the policies of the company. They're going to be the backbone of who we are. And because of that, not only will we be able to be profitable and, and make our company employees happy, we will attract great employees because they will see the value of this kind of model. Now, to be strictly honest, not everybody likes that model. There are plenty of people that going home at six o'clock sounds boring. They want to work. They want to go push. They want to push themselves. They don't need that kind of supportive work-life balance environment. They want status. They want money. They want something else. And for them, that was a bad fit. But the thing about employer brand was a flag that said, this is who we are and this is what we stand for. And these are the kinds of people who will like working here, right? Let's be fair. The difference between Walmart and Target 
is thin. <laughs> you know, the big box retailers, they sell lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff, everything from toilet paper and paper towels to groceries to uh, bicycles to clothing to you name it, sh you know, shaving gear. Um, and they try to do it the cheapest price possible. And there are minor differences. But beyond that, the reason why people shop at one over the other is because of that brand. Some people like Target. Some people don't like Walmart. Some people like Walmart. Some people don't like Target. There are reasons. Some of them are political. Some of them are personal. Some of them are geographic. It doesn't matter. There are reasons. There are, people say there are, there are Target people and there are Walmart people. Okay. So if that's true, why can't we extend that to employer bands? Some of these people are SaaS people. They want to go home. They want to be satisfied that they've done a good day's work, but they're not there to make a million dollars. Some people want to work at Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs and, 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 and uh, Solomon Brothers and all those places that you know, were big money places. Or uh, you know, why do you choose to work at AT&T? And why do you choose to work at Verizon or T-Mobile or Sprint or any you know, company like that? Why? What's the reason? Okay, so that's kind of where the employer brand stems from, those eight motivating factors. You care about innovation. You care about the opportunity for you to grow your career and make a lot of money or your status or how much support you get from your, um, you know, your team and your employees or in, and your, your, your boss and all that stuff. There's a reason you choose to work there. The problem is until you really kind of said this is our employer brand, how would people know that? Right? The, you know, if, if you came in from Europe and you didn't know anybody in America and you didn't know the difference between Target and Walmart and you walked in and you would say, well, they're effectively the same. And everybody in America would go, what are you, crazy? <laughs> Radically different in the very subtlest of ways. So there was no way for companies to kind of signal or there's at least there was no investment in signaling to people. This is what our brand stands for. These are the people who would be good fits. Employer brand is kind of the solution to that problem. Now, where does an employer brand come from or what is it or how do you build it or how do you make it and how do you shape it and all the other good stuff let's talk about that so hold on i gotta drink coffee i went 16 whole minutes without drinking coffee and it's espresso this this afternoon so there we go oh yeah that's strong okay i was not playing around today <laughs> you're welcome everybody those of you listening are like yeah we know we can tell so there are three big ideas that influence and shape and form the employer brand. And it gets a little messy, and I wish I had a diagram for you that I could share with you, but this is audio and it doesn't work that way. But we're gonna talk about it this way. There are three big buckets. So the first bucket are external factors. So for example, what is the industry you're in? What kind of competition do you have? Um, if you are Amazon, and you, hey Amazon, how you doing? You have all my money. You and Target have all my money. So we all... <laughs> You have in no way influenced uh, this podcast short of just, that's where I do a lot of shopping. Um, Amazon, who is Amazon's competitive set? Well, from a consumer side, it's Walmart and Target, uh, maybe Best Buy, maybe Jet, maybe a couple other companies, um, yeah, maybe Etsy sort of, um, places that are just a lot of retail shopping, right? Okay, that's their competitive set. Who is their employer brand competitive set? Well. They're headquartered out of Seattle, so you're going to start with Microsoft and Boeing. <laughs> Not the same. Very different. And while they have locations worldwide, their headquarters are you know, cored out of Seattle. Maybe you can talk about Austin, and Austin has incredible competition from a tech space because there's so many you know, companies out there just like San Francisco and the Valley. Uh, they're worldwide, so you know Singapore or Ireland or wherever they are located, they have different competition relative to them. It's competition for talent. So again, uh, when you're talking about 
cloud DevOps people, which Amazon loves to hire because, you know, hey, that's what they do, um, they're going to be competing with Microsoft quite a bit for anybody in the local geography, as well as people willing to fly and move to Seattle. Not everybody's willing to move to Seattle. I've heard wonderful things, but I just like like Chicago, and I have no interest in leaving. So, you know, their, their competitive set is a function of their location and their industry. It's also about where their competition is, right? So it's about understanding who would work here. How far am I going to cast my net? Am I going to be willing to hire people if I'm Amazon? Can I hire people out of Nebraska and fly and translocate them out to my location and make that okay? Or am I purely a 20 miles out and that's as far as I'm going to worry about looking? That's a company decision. Those are external factors that determine. If Amazon suddenly, I don't know, Jeff, Jeff got hit in the head. Hey, Jeff, I don't know why I'm calling you Jeff like we're best friends, Mr. Bezos. Uh, Mr. I have all the money and all of my money, as we just talked about. Um, if he hit his head and decided, you know what we're going to be about? We're going to be about washing machines. We're going to make and sell wa the best washing machines ever. Okay. <laughs> There's a different competitive set for that on the, con excuse me, the consumer side and on the employer brand side, given, again, they're in Seattle. Maybe the competition is less about Microsoft and more about, I don't know, Boeing, where they do all that manufacturing, right? That's the kind of talent they're going to be hiring. So the inter external factors have a lot to do with it. But that's just the first bucket. The second bucket is internal, but we split the internal bucket into two sections. First is management, and second is I'm going to call lovingly people as if managers aren't people, but we all know they are. But, you know, Harvard Business Review might quibble. <laughs> they might not say those are people. Those are assets. Those are resources, uh, whatever. Um, but it's management and staff. Those are the two big buckets. So you have an external bucket and the internal bucket sliced in half, uh, management and people. So it was interesting in the chat. Everybody, not, I mean, not everybody, that's a too broad a brush. A lot of people talked about employer brand is coming from um, the culture and management. They Everybody knew that they both had an impact. Uh, a lot of it was um, management decides what the employer brand is and the staff have to kind of upkeep it, you know, they have to kind of live up to it. And I thought that was, hmm, does that sound true? Does that sound accurate? Um, does management truly say this is what employ our employer brand is? Again, if Amazon, and we can talk about Amazon for employer brand about something else unpleasant in a minute, uh, if Amazon decided that our employer brand is not about they're currently pioneers, if I remember correctly. It's all about pioneering, which is kind of a cool idea. Um, so it's focused on innovation in that innovation section of the wheel. Um, if they decided their employer brand was all about work-life balance, and there's giggling in the room, um, if they decided it was all about work-life balance, how effective would that employer brand be? Now, let's think about that. Let's walk that through. We all know about the New York Times article about the, how atrocious, quote unquote, atrocious is, is to work at Amazon and all the crying that happens and the, the sniping reviews and the anonymous reviews and all the, you know, the pain and bitterness of that. Um, they're all about innovation. They're all about willing to sacrifice pain in order to make something grow, to try new things. They are puzzle masters. They are the people who stay up late at night trying to figure out and solve a puzzle. And that is who they are. I had an opportunity to talk to some employer brand people out in Amazon uh, last year. Last year? Yeah, let's call it last year. Maybe a little before that. Um, and they admitted it. They said, look, that article was factually accurate. It just had the wrong tone. We all believe that we are willing to sacrifice to try to build bigger things, to try something new, to try something revolutionary, to solve the world's biggest problems. You know, let's talk about 
um, you know, Amazon Web Services, and which has enabled so much of the um, the, 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 the startup boom. Uh, you can talk to the Exponent podcast about that. They love that. Um, they've, they've, they've enabled, you know, they're, they're effectively buying planes so they can do transportation faster. There's, you know, what once was just the United States Postal Service, UPS, and FedEx. Now there's Amazon as an independent delivery system. They're willing to invest and try new things in just about anything if they think they can solve that problem. That's who they are. If they decided they were work-life balance focused, and it turns out everybody's still working 12 hours a day and showing up at late at night on Sunday because they suddenly had a reason to solve a problem, does that align? Does the employer brand, the stated employer brand, align with reality? Well, no. And Amazon is not going to change its policy unless it does, unless it decides no one can stay after six and lock the doors and we're not going to do anything on the weekends. They're going to have a misalignment of employer brand. There's what everybody feels as from the inside, and then there's what they state to the world. And that misalignment never lasts long. So management can't simply say, hey, this is our employee brand, especially if it doesn't align with reality. They can't just claim it. They can't just make a press release say, hey, we're all about X. Good to go. Bye. Doesn't work that way in any way, shape, or form. The employer brand is a function at its core of its mission and culture. So if you're all about working long days, that's who you are as a culture and everybody's comfortable with that, guess what? That gets baked into your employer brand. If your mission is to save the world or save the dolphins or save the pails, who cares? That's part and parcel of the culture that gets influenced by your employer brand, right? I worked for Wisconsin Alumni Association, nonprofit, and one of the things about certain nonprofits is that there's an effective yeah, a bias against people who aren't willing to give more. There is a in a nonprofit space, there has a tendency to um, be holier than thou. Why aren't you willing to sacrifice a little bit more for this core we core cause we all believe in? Um, that was their employee brand. They were willing to sacrifice for that cause. Notice how that sounds very similar to Amazon, even though they're radically different. Uh, the nonprofit to um, promote badgers across the country, uh, the 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 alumni, not the animal, um, versus the company that sells you, you know, that with one button can send you more Febreze. Um, they have a similar idea. We're willing to sacrifice for this thing. So the mission and culture are impact the employer brand. If you don't take in into account your your culture and your mission, and just say this is our employer brand because we think we can, you're going to fail. That's like every strategic um, brief and, and binder that comes out from, you know, the, you know the, oh, this is our strategy from now on. It's this in a binder forever. Excuse me. I need a mute button for this thing. Hey, I found the mute button. Okay, so water. So you have to take into account your culture and your mission when it comes to your employer brand. But where does the culture and the mission come from? Well, uh, your culture comes from your people. Take 20 people, put them in a room, tell them they have to do a task. Now, if you put 20 sharks in that room, they will be cutthroat, they will be competitive, they will get the job done in a way that is cutthroat and competitive, right? You didn't say go be cutthroat and competitive. You didn't say go be sharks. You hired sharks. If you hired... I don't know what's the opposite of shark, a sheep. That sounds rude. But someone, who, you know, people who are very supportive and consensus-oriented, uh, put them in the same room, in a very different room, but give them the same task, they will also accomplish the task, but they will do it in a way that's consensus-oriented. 
It won't be competitive. It won't be uh, cutthroat. It will be consensus. At no point did you tell that room of people how to be, what their culture should be. The people determined the culture. You can't change that. This is a leopard spots kind of thing. The people determines the culture. You can influence the culture. You can allow a culture. You can enable a culture, but you cannot spark a culture. You cannot go to Amazon and say, from now on, you are all work-life balanced because they hired thousands and thousands of puzzle masters and obsessives and people who are willing to sacrifice to try amazing things and suddenly say, this is who you are now. You're asking sharks to be something that they're not in effect, right? Okay, so if that's your culture, management uh, can influence that culture. They can say, just like SAS did, uh, we're closing the doors at six. Uh, the open source po open policy is you can work from home whenever you want. The policy is um, we have a gym. The policy is you have as much sick time as you want, as much as you need. That's the policy. Those policies influence the culture. Suddenly it's less cutthroat because people don't feel like um, there's less at the table. You know, a cutthroat culture sometimes happens because or can sometimes be encouraged by, you know, it's a game of musical chairs. There's 20 people looking for a chair and there's only 19 chairs. That creates competition. There's no way around that. If your company is in a position where only some people get resources and some people don't, some people are effectively the losers in that process, you get more competition. It's, not, it's a zero-sum game. Uh, think of Microsoft. Microsoft, I'm sorry, not Microsoft. GE notoriously had a bottom 10% uh, fire rate. If you weren't in the top 90%, you didn't belong there and you, they got rid of you. You think it was competitive to not be in the top, in the bottom 20, bottom 10%? Hell, hell yeah. That was your job. You had to stay above that line. More bonuses happened towards the top, but really it was about trimming the bottom 10% every single year. You weren't competing against some sort of arbitrary or determined goal, you were competing against your fellow employees. That influences and enables and allows a culture. If you were a nonprofit and you were all about um, the culture is supposed to be consensus oriented and communal and community based, and you suddenly said, we're only going to give bonuses to the top 1% of employees, Guess what? You just screwed over your culture and your your you know your management disavowed your culture and said we're trying to shift the culture using incentives and using policies, which are the only weapon they have in that process. You can't simply say, "Hey, we're this now." You have to use incentives and and, pro and policies to make that happen. The other way you influence culture is, and this is how management does it. This is probably the most direct way management does it, if it's thinking in this way, is to actually be the people who hire people. When I pick 20 people to be in that room and they're sharks or they're sheep or whatever we're calling them, I picked those 20 people. I could have picked the sharks or I could have picked the non-sharks and I made choices. I made a conscious choice. This job requires sharks. Guess what? I'm going to get more sharks. I'm going to end up more in a competitive space. The rest of the staff didn't say, okay, what we need to do is hire more sharks because they're like us and we think they fit. Management makes those decisions. So that's, it's a kind of a web, but this is how it met, puts to, comes together. Management is an influencer of culture. The people are the actual culture. Those two things connect via a series of hiring process to um, foster a culture and then policies and processes that enable and allow or veto parts of the culture that influence the culture. But in the end, it's, it's the staff that's the culture. That culture 
can be manifested as an employer brand. Okay, we're not done. So let's take Amazon, because again, please, 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 they have all my money. I love them to death. They think they're a fantastic company. I'm truly a fantastic company. I'm, I'm just in love with them, okay? There you go, bias on the table. <laughs> no, I'm not applying for a job. No, they don't sponsor this podcast. Um, but when the article comes out from the New York Times that was a huge article, it was a year and a half ago, right? Um, huge article. I mean, painful, hurtful, hit job level article about Amazon. Now, you want to get in the politics that it's interesting that the Wall Street Journal, I'm sorry, the New York Times' big competition is the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, one of which happens to be owned by Jeff Bezos, who happens to own Amazon. Eh, you could read into that if you want, if you want to be that kind of person. Sometimes I do, but not today. They did a hit job. They had an opportunity to say incredibly painful, hurtful things about that brand of Amazon, an employer brand of Amazon, and they did it. Now, like I said, I talked to them and they said that's not true. That's not factually inaccurate. Those things are true, that they have those tools and it is a cutthroat space and people do cry at their desk and these things happen. There were some elements of that article that they quibbled with and said, uh, you could frame that a couple of different ways or you could see that a couple of different ways. And I think they, every single time, the article seemed to take the choice that this was a bad thing every single time and framed it in such a way. But they said, look, no one comes in thinking they're going to work at the Red Cross. They know what they're in for. We make it very clear. The hiring and interview process is not exactly opening and welcoming. It's rigorous. And it doesn't change once you get in the door. We make it very clear that there are certain people who will fit and certain people who don't. And just because you don't fit doesn't mean you're bad. It just means it's a fit question, right? Now, the brand is an interesting word. When you say employer brand, people think of brands, right? They think of Coke. They think of uh, you know, Starbucks. They think of brands, you know, Nike swoosh logos and things that have emotional connections to products, right? That's not an accident. When you talk about an employer brand, you're talking about the frame around which you put your rest of your culture and your mission. And all those things we talked about in those buckets, the external factors and the internal factors of management of people, how do you frame that? So if you're Amazon, and I'm hoping I'm not letting too much out of the bag, I don't think I know too, anything that was uh, you know, non-disclosable, but they're, you know, so they it, it's all out in the open. They are a tough place to work. New York Times let the cat out of the bag in case you didn't know, this is a brutal place to work. It can be anyway. And some people are gonna fit and some people aren't. Now. Amazon does not counter by saying, okay, what we have to do is soften our image because they don't want those people. Like I said, you don't fit. If you are that way, you don't fit. They want the people who like this stuff. And maybe it gets you know, tough over time to manage that uh, cutthroat nature. I mean, a cutthroat, they, don't, they wouldn't call it that way. But that kind of um, focused agenda to solve amazing problems. Over time, that's got to be stressful, and people may not want to do it forever. Maybe it's a, you know uh, you do it for a couple years, and then you've, you're satisfied, and you could get to go do something else. They're comfortable with that. They're not there to, you know, say, okay, we're going to be fuzzy bunny now, and we're going to be completely open about everything, and we're no longer going to criticize each other. And frankly, <laughs> um, 
this is a story and it has no names on it, but it is true, at least as it was told to me inside Amazon. It goes, the first time you get some sort of feedback and it turns out Jeff Bezos wrote something about you, it is a gut punch. And then you go, okay, that was pos- that was powerful feedback and now I know what to fix and now I know what to change or now I know what my opportunities for growth are. And it's not just Jeff, it's across the board. We look at that feedback not as a you suck, but more in a here's where places where you can improve. And we mean that and we can help you improve, but you got to do the work, right? There are plenty of places where that feedback is minimized because they want you to feel good and that's just not Amazon's way, right? So again, negative hit job, very, very well-established, we're a cutthroat or competitive or very driven organization. How do they counter? Well, they don't counter. They do kind of a jujitsu judo move where they say those things are all true and we're 100% cool with it because that's what we're here for. We're here to push ourselves. We're here to solve the biggest problems. We're here to do things that have never been done before. Do you think IBM's making a biosphere or you know some sort of ecosphere out of their offices? No. Do you think um, AT and T is gonna uh, build a, you know buy a bunch of planes to do to transport all their phones and things around? No. We are here to do something amazing, and that is who they are. That is what they signed up for, and that is what they're going to be. What they just did is turned a negative into a positive. That's called marketing, right? <laughs> Look at it. Google's my favorite example. Everybody knows about, you know, you say, hey, what's the employer brand at Google? It's like, oh, it's M&M's and it's free food and amazing coffee at every floor with 14 different kinds of milk and, you know, they uh, massage rooms and beanbag chairs and yada, yada, yada. You know, and if you're in the Valley, it's the bus that takes you from one place to another and the bus has Wi-Fi so you can get some stuff done and it's a great place to work. They've got all these perks. Why? Well, it's because they don't ever want you to go home. They want you to live there. They realized early on that they were sleeping at their desks or under their desks, so they made nap rooms to make that easier. And they realized everybody was ordering food in. They said, well, gosh, it's more, it's more efficient for us to just make food for you that's good for you and, or you, you know, have some options and it's local and you get right back to your desk and back to work to code. So that's what they did. So when their employer brand is all these amazing cool perks, which everybody wants, but the underlying truth is the sacrifice to make things happen. The willingness to say, work-life balance, never heard of it. That's marketing, turning a negative into a positive. How do you frame what is true about you in a way that people go, oh, I get it, that's kind of cool, and that sounds like me. That was a three-step process, right? I get it, that sounds cool, that sounds like me. I get it. I've heard the brand. I appreciate the band. I, you know, I, I, it sounds cool. That sounds interesting and worth investigating. And that sounds like me. That's a good fit. That's really what employer brand is all about. How do you take who you are and apply a frame around it to communicate to the world, this is the kind of person who is successful here? That's really the ultimate goal of an employer brand. Now, an employer brand isn't always 100% current, meaning, let's say, I don't want to use Amazon anymore, let's just say it's a random company X, and there are things there, you know, that good and bad, just like every single company out there, every single one, your, mine, everybody, everybody has goods and bad, good and bad, positives, negatives, pros and cons, they're there. Some people, some companies try to say, here's my employer brand, and it's 100% aspirational, 
This isn't about who we are now. This is who we want to be one day, right? And it doesn't align with the truth. In the same way that if Amazon said we're all about work-life balance, it doesn't align with what's real. Now, there's an opportunity to be somewhat aspirational in your employer brand. You can be maybe 10% aspirational. You can show that you're investing in those aspirations. But if you're just saying, hey, we're a company that makes plumbing supplies, but we expect to be on the moon soon. What? <laughs> Excuse you. Um, you don't have a plan. You don't have any resources. You don't know how you're going to do it. You don't have a, a timeline or anything like that. You are, hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, yeah, lying, bullshitting, full of it, right? It's 100% aspirational without anything to back it up. Now, when Elon Musk stands up there and says, we're going to put solar tiles on every house. Oh, and by the way, here's an example. Oh, and by the way, they're already selling. Oh, and by the way, they're only slightly more expensive than regular tiles. Oh, and by the way, here are things, here's the factory that's going to make them. Okay, that's not aspirational. That's a plan. When Elon Musk steps up and says, we're going to put solar panels on every roof, you go, that could be like a thing. <laughs> in the same way for an employer brand. If you decide we are going to allow everybody to work from home 24-7, but you're in a space where no one ever works from home ever, that's too aspirational. It's not real. And I'm being super tactical about that just because I'm making stuff up on the fly. So you can be about 10% aspirational, but that means 90% of it has to be based in reality, who you are today. And that means go to your glass door reviews and read all the goods and the bads and say, okay, does this employer brand take those things into account? If your employer brand is all about, you know, management doesn't know what's going on and it's chaos over here. Okay, that sounds horrible. Or you can frame it as these, this is an opportunity for you to take your ambition and your drive and make something happen because effectively there's not a lot of things standing in your way. There's room to run. They're both true. They're, frankly, they're both the same thing. One is just a positive spin on a negative thing and one is simply focusing on the negative. Your call. You're all marketers. Well, if you're a recruiter, you're a marketer now. Congratulations. Um, yeah, so there you go. So that's an employer brand. So to recap, because I should probably do more recapping. And by the way, 40 minutes on the nose. Man, how do I do this? I don't know. It's coffee. I blame coffee. So employer brand is a function of external factors like your industry and your competition set, competitive set. Um, and then it's your internal factors based on management and staff. Management impacts via who it hires and then the policies that impact the culture and the people are the culture. That's how you build an employer brand, or at least the core of an employer brand. Then a good employer branding person will take that, the positive and negatives, and wrap it in a label that incorporates and encapsulates all those things in a way that makes people go, hmm, I get what it would be like to work there, yay. Or just as honestly, just as usefully, yay, I get what it would like to work there, mm, no thank you. <laughs> right? There are plenty of people who would love to work in Amazon and plenty of people who would kill to get out and to stay away. Not a good or bad thing. It's simply about this isn't a good fit. That's what employer brand is all about. How do you highlight who would be a good fit? Put simply. So that's what I got. Hope you enjoyed it. Anyway, uh, thanks everybody. Uh, like I said, 30 countries downloaded in 30 countries. That's crazy. Um, I went to American public school, so I don't know if I could name 30 countries. Just kidding. Thought you'd enjoy that. Uh, <laughs> If you have any questions or commentary, if you want to know more, or if you want to bug me, if you have ideas for the next podcast or new, new podcast coming soon, just find me on the Twitter. I am 
at the war for talent. At, that's right, it's at, meaning the little at sign, which you all know is in your email, the war for talent. Or you can just find the website, thetalentcast.com, thetalentcast.com. Why both start with the? I can't help you with that. Um, love to hear your comments. Love to hear your reviews. Anything you can do to share this around, I appreciate. We seem to be growing at a fairly steady clip, and I am stunned for a tiny little podcast that I do out of my little bunker, usually most mornings, and powered by coffee and nothing more. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I think my next podcast will have a guest, a very, very, very special guest. I'm not going to let it out of the bag just in case it doesn't quite line out or doesn't quite work out. Otherwise, thanks very much. Oh, and then I have a new article on ERE that came out last Wednesday about talent communities and how to make them better. I think you should check it out. Um, thanks to ERE for publishing my stuff. I always love it. So that's all I got. Uh, if you have any questions or complaints, find me on Twitter or find us on the website, thetalentcast.com. Otherwise, I will see you next week.